The title of this message is The Prayer of a Missionary People. And we're in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Um, we're going to get into that text in just a moment. You'll notice as we read the passage that it has a very simple structure. Um, there are three identifiable sections. Each one of them begins with a two-word phrase, when they, when they. And uh, so the first and third sections are just one verse each in length. Uh, verses 23 and 31 respectively, and then the second section in between spans verses 24 through 30. The action in this passage um, near the end of uh, the fourth chapter here of Acts is part of that continuing saga that began at the start of chapter 3, where Peter and John were going up to the temple one afternoon and uh, encountered a man Uh, in his 40s, who from birth had never been able to walk, uh, not a day in his life. And consequently, he was carried each day to one of the gates of the temple um, to ask for alms, literally to beg. And, and, And the man asks Peter and John for alms, and Peter responds, silver and gold I don't have, what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he takes him by the hand, pulls the man to his feet, and for the first time in his life, he walks. And he's he's healed completely. He's healed immediately. There's no surgical process. There's no therapeutic process. He's completely coordinated. He walks. He leaps. And, uh, of course, he praises God. Those who knew this man and uh, witnessed his healing were understandably amazed, and the opportunity presented itself for Peter and John to give credit to Jesus Uh, whom they had killed, those people there had killed, but whom God, they said, had raised from the dead. He he proclaimed the gospel that day, and uh, it says that 5,000 men believed the message and uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ. We noted that that number 5,000 was just the men. It didn't represent the rest of their families, their children, their spouses, just the men. So Um, a huge ingathering that day of people believing in Jesus. So then some of the Jewish leaders saw what had happened, came along, arrested Peter and John for teaching the people and proclaiming in the name of Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The two apostles spend the night in jail, and in the morning they appear before the Sanhedrin, which is the supreme ruling council of the Jews. They are questioned by that council. And uh, this too becomes an opportunity for Peter and John, to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That same Jesus that they had delivered over to be crucified, but whom God had raised from the dead. And so the Sanhedrin warns them uh, that they're never again to teach in the name of Jesus. And the apostles answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Peter and John are threatened, and they're and then they're released, and that's where we pick up the story today. Now, some of you are thinking, I know you're thinking this, well, if you can tell the story that quickly, why were the last two sermons just so stinking long? Um, and, and, and that's a good question. I'll think about it a little, just a little, though. But let's stand and read this morning's text together, Acts 4, 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, 
Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, in verses 23, or verse 23, the apostles report, the apostles report, and there's that demarcation when they were released, when they were released. Uh, If we reach back into last week's text, just briefly, to verse 21, verses 21 and 23 together sound like this, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people where all were praising God for what had happened. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now notice with me that the Sanhedrin had chosen not to punish Peter and John. Uh, there's only one reason given for their decision, and that is because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. Well, not exactly all. The religious leaders themselves weren't praising God. Uh, They were perplexed. Uh, They were frustrated. They gave in to political pressure. And and I think it was for that reason alone that that they let Peter and John go on this occasion without being punished. Now notice with me where Peter and John went when they were released. The ESV says they went to their friends. And literally the Greek text says they returned to their own. They returned to their own. their own friends, their own relatives, their own people. It tells us that Peter and John belonged to the church and that the church belonged to them. There is this sense of, of a clear expression of identification, of belonging, of even intimacy in that two-word phrase, their own. You read it in John 1 where it says uh, of Jesus that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Uh, we also read it in the Upper Room Discourse where uh, Jesus is preparing to wash the disciples' feet. And it says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. There is this sense of intimacy in that expression, their own. So for Peter and John, their first point of refuge when they were in trouble was the church, where they were loved, where they knew that they would be cared for. So let me pause right here and ask you a question. Where or to whom do you go when you're facing the pressures that come with following Christ? Maybe your answer depends on why you're facing pressures, what the source of the threat may be. Peter and John have suffered a little, just a little, for Christ and the gospel, and so they went back 
and huddled with those others who knew Christ and who embraced the gospel. Where do you go when you suffer for the sake of Christ? You know, the Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you have decided to follow Jesus in your life, uh, don't be surprised when you face adversity. Don't be surprised when you face opposition or derision. Um, so where do you go on those occasions? Do you go to a believing spouse? Maybe you do. To a believing family? I hope so. To a life group where you're known and where you belong? I hope you have some people that you can call your own. They went to their own. And then they reported what had been said to them. They reported what had been said to them. At our house, we've been watching uh, The Chosen on recent evenings. If you haven't watched those videos, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, In one of the episodes that we saw this week, Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptizer, are are having a conversation beside a lake. Uh, They're sitting on a log together having a conversation. And and things are heating up for both of them in terms of uh, political opposition. And John turns to Jesus on this occasion and he asks, it's getting real, isn't it? I thought it was a poignant moment. It's getting real, isn't it? For Peter and John here through their encounter with the Sanhedrin, things had also started getting real. More intense opposition laid just ahead of them. And, you know, my hope in teaching through the book of Acts is that we as a church will will be stimulated to think missionally. That is to think like missionaries think. And something I know about a church that's faithful to its mission to help people find and follow Jesus is that that church will always have plenty to report in the way of opposition and adversity. The body of Christ needs to hear those reports. We need to share in adversity together. I don't know about you, but I've sat through in my lifetime a lot of reports from missionaries on on, uh, fields, you know, in Europe and Asia and Africa and everywhere on the face of the earth. And a lot of times they're just sugar-coated. It's like, oh, everything's going great. We have great unity in the team and people are being saved and it's just great, you know. I don't believe them a lot of the time. I don't believe them. Now, I believe that people are being saved. I believe that there's, you know, there's a lot to believe there. But they never talk about adversity. And adversity comes to everyone who decides to serve Jesus Christ in their lives, whether it's in a a personal ministry or a a formal one. So we need to share in the adversity together. We need not to not sugarcoat the reports. We need to encourage each other and pray for each other. These should be among the dynamics between Christian friends. Reality. Reality. In verses 24 to 30, then, the church prays. The church prays. Notice the, uh, again, the, the when they phrase, and when they heard it. Hearing the apostles' report initiated the start of an impromptu prayer meeting. And this passage is going to tell us, in part, the answer to the question, how do missionary people pray? How do missionary people pray? pray, especially in in response to adversity. 
Notice that we, I'm using the word missionary there as an adjective, a descriptive word. A people who are missionary in their nature, a people who are missionary in their uh, identity, and people who are missionary in their conduct. How do missionary people pray, especially in response to adversity? Verse 24 says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and I'll stop right there. Reading this verse, I don't think we should conclude, as somebody might, that they were each kind of supernaturally downloaded the same script so that they all spoke the same words together in unison. I'm fairly confident that's not what is being expressed here. The word translated together in verse 24 is often translated by the phrases in one accord, or with one heart and mind. Now, the word is homothumadon. Literal translation would be having the same passion, sharing a common passion. And what we should probably understand from this is not that they were reading from a common script, but that each of them was powerfully moved to cry out to God in passionate prayer. Maybe someone was leading them in prayer. Maybe several of them prayed aloud. But what Luke is telling us is both how they prayed, that is, with a shared passion, and then what the themes of their prayer were. So voices then, plural here in the ESV, should probably be voice singular, as it is in some other translations, because what Luke is describing represents the collective voice of the believers. And the first thing he tells us is that collectively they affirmed God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Notice in verse 24, the first two words of their prayer, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. In the Greek text, it's just one word, despotes. It's there in your sermon notes. It's the word from which we um, get our word despot, which means someone who holds absolute power. Uh, We tend to think of a despot in a negative sense uh, for a ruler who exercises power and authority in a way that's cruel or oppressive. Um, Someone said one time, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But that's not the sense here. We're not talking about a, a human sovereign. We're talking about the Lord of the universe, sovereign Lord, and and the translators chose to use the word sovereign Lord. What what do we mean then when we talk, when we Christians talk about the sovereignty of God? Here's a simple definition. God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he decides to do. I'm going to pause right there so you can write that down. God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he decides to do. Job expressed this well when he said in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The God of the Bible is ultimate and unrivaled in his power and authority. Through the prophet Isaiah, he said, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. In Isaiah 43.11, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. In Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. 
Besides me there is no God. You know, we frequently sing a song here at LifePoint that expresses these truths very, very well. We sing, you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. And that's not just poetry, it's not just hyperbole. What we're expressing is ultimate reality. It's essential as we begin to pray that we dial our minds into who it is to whom we're praying. And I imagine that's why exactly why when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he told them to begin, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That when we pray, we should never be loose. We should never be irreverent. We should never be glib. We should force ourselves not to fall into the verbal ruts that we get into in our prayer lives. We're addressing the King of the universe, the Sovereign Lord who invites us into His presence only on the basis of the sacrifice of His one and only Son and our faith in Him. And when we contemplate His greatness, when we contemplate His power, His authority, His wisdom, His love, His mercy, His loving kindness, our pressures and problems are put into their proper perspective aren't they? When we realize the enormity, the, the, the infinite resources that God has available for us, our problems are put in perspective. So in your personal prayer life, or as you pray at the dinner table with your family, or, or as you pray in your life group, or in any other setting, take time at the outset of your prayer to com- contemplate who it is you are praying to and consider His limitless resources for the needs that you're bringing to Him. So as the church began to pray and to declare the sovereignty of God, they expressed it in three ways. First, they recognize and declare that He is the God of creation. He is the God of creation. Notice the latter part of verse 24, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The God of Israel is the sovereign creator and Lord. You know, I, I, I often think that it must be a very difficult thing to be to call yourself a, a biblical Christian and yet to assert that you are not personally a creationist. We often think of the Genesis account alone when we're talking about biblical creationism. And, and you, you've, you may have heard all of the arguments that surround all of that. The old earth, young earth, days, all, all, that, all that goes into that. But the fact is that that's not the only place in the Bible that talks about the creation. In fact, the theme um, of creation is woven throughout the Scripture, there are witnesses to God as Creator throughout the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Jump back with me again to the book of the prophet Isaiah as an example where God says through the prophet, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself. The One who created everything is therefore sovereign. 
over everything. And he exercises ultimate, unlimited, unrivaled authority over everything and everyone that he has made. And that's a great place to begin your contemplations, especially when you're suffering for his name, when you're up against it. Not only that, but David said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. So he not only created everything, he presides over it. He administers the universe not only with power and authority, but also with goodness and mercy. Next, the church affirmed that he's the God of revelation. God of revelation. Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now I want to pause here again and ask you to notice with me the language in verse 25 because there's a description there of what we mean when we say that the Scripture is inspired by God. And on that basis, we treat it as authoritative in the establishment of our doctrine and in the conduct of our personal lives and the conduct of the life of our church. Verse 25, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and said, All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out. That phrase, breathed out, is often translated inspired because it means exactly the same thing. From that comes the expression, the inspiration of Scripture. And the idea of the inspiration of Scripture is that biblical Scripture is the product of God breathing or speaking it into the heart and mind of a human author who then writes it down for others to read. So coming back, and and by the way, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, it's not the same. We're not saying the same thing as, you know, someone, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, get inspired to write a song. Or Henry Wadsworth Longfellow getting inspired, you know, to write a poem. Or someone sees a beautiful sunset and is inspired to to paint it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something very different. So coming back to verse 25 of Acts 4, notice what's being expressed. Again, Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. The subject in the sentence, a little English class here, subject in the sentence is Sovereign Lord, isn't it? And the verb is said. The Sovereign Lord said. And then there are two prepositional phrases. The first is, through the mouth of our father David. So now the sovereign Lord is speaking through a human, specifically in this case, King David. And the second prepositional phrase tells us how the Lord did that. It was by the Holy Spirit. So notice the progression then. The Lord speaks through a human author by means of the Holy Spirit. It's on this basis that we affirm that what gets written down and handed down to us is God's 
inspired word. God breathing scripture. And you know, I think each of us should ask God to renew our awareness, our appreciation, our understanding then that the words that we read on the pages of our Bibles are not just human language. They're not just humanly concocted stories, but they are breathed out by the Holy Spirit so that as we read the Bible, we are encountering the very mind and heart and will of God. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to to, uh, to do your theology from a, a trustworthy translation of the Bible and not maybe a, just a, a modern paraphrase. You want to get as close to the original language as you possibly can. So what was the church pointing to in their prayer when they said that the Lord spoke through the mouth of their ancestor David by the Holy Spirit? They were seeing the words of the prophecy in Psalm 2, which the Jews have always held to be a messianic psalm, reflected in the events and the experiences of Jesus' suffering and death, and now in their own experiences, initial experiences of opposition and intimidation. The first two verses of that psalm is what they quoted in their prayer. Why? Did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So what the psalm anticipates, and it's a prophetic psalm, what the psalm anticipates is the world's opposition to Messiah, the Lord's anointed, Jesus Christ, with with nations raging, peoples plotting, kings of the earth standing against him, rulers gathering together, uh, conspiring together to oppose him. And these believers in their prayer stopped at verse 2, but the rest of the psalm points not only to God's ultimate victory, but also to the ultimate vindication of his son, his anointed one. Third, they recognized the sovereign Lord as the God who is sovereign over history. Over history. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, notice, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod and Pontius Pilate, a a king, vassal king and a ruler, um, the Roman Gentiles, the leadership and citizens of Israel, all colluded, conspired against God's holy servant Jesus. Yes, but they only did, and this is what they're affirming, they only did what God had decided beforehand would happen. He's the God of history. Someone said to me between services, "His history is his story. And in the same way, what was now happening to them was in fulfillment of what Jesus had told them they would experience for the sake of his name by extension. The believers were confident that that what the prophets had said had real-world fulfillment, real-world 
significance. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that God's plan for the fullness of time, Ephesians 1, is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, and it is toward that predetermined end point that all of history is moving. So as you're watching the evening news and you're connecting the dots, understand that Israel will always be at the center of world history. It is still the center of the world. It's in the news every night. Why? Because Israel is the land and the Jews are God's people. And that hasn't stopped. So when you're trying, you're saying, what's, you know, this is going on here, this is going on here, all that's going on. Understand that God is weaving it all together toward a predetermined end. And that predetermined end is that he's going to bring everything together un, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's the point that, that Paul talked about in Philippians 2, that, that at the name, someday at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Whether on heaven or on earth or under the earth, and every tongue, every tongue will confess him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. For some people, that, that, that confession of Jesus' lordship will be a moment of sheer horror. And for others, it will be a time of great celebration. So he is the God of creation. He's the God of revelation. He's the God of history. He's the sovereign Lord. And with all of that in mind then, they presented their requests to God. They presented their requests to God. You know, I think it's worth noting here what they didn't pray for. They didn't pray the way I probably would have prayed. They didn't pray for payback or protection or preservation. They didn't pray that they would be spared further confrontation or suffering. They didn't pray that the Sanhedrin would fall under divine judgment, you know, that, that God would strike the Sanhedrin with lightning or, or that their threats would go unfulfilled. They didn't pray in good Old Testament fashion that their enemies would be blinded or confused or turn against each other. None of that. But notice what they did pray for. They had three main requests. First of all, they prayed for God's attentiveness to their circumstances. Verse 20, first part of verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Look upon their threats. Isn't it good when you're, when you're going through times of difficulty and stress to know that God is aware that, that not one little detail of your circumstances has escaped His notice? that his eyes are on you, that, that, uh, that he's attentive to your circumstances, that in spite of what he may be allowing you to suffer for his name, he loves you, and he's fulfilling his purposes in you as well as through you. Secondly, they prayed for boldness to speak the word of God. Verse 29, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word 
with all boldness. I recently heard another pastor talking about having attended an evangelism conference. He called it a conference to help people get better about sharing their faith in Jesus with others. And he he described the way the main the surprising way that the main speaker at the conference opened the very first session. And there are hundreds of people in the audience, and this guy walks up to the podium and without any introduction said this. For some Christians, talking to Jesus, talking to others about Jesus, comes naturally. I'm not one of them. Some Christians just can't help sharing the gospel. I can help it very much. Some can't sleep at night if they haven't shared the gospel with someone new that day. I sleep just fine, thank you very much. Some Christians pray every day for an opportunity to share Christ with someone beside them on a plane or a train or in a taxi cab. I pray for an empty seat. (laughs) A lot of that is because I'm still afraid of how it will go. And all God's people said, Amen. (laughs) Right? You resonate with that? I do. I find it remarkably refreshing. But at the same time, it's somewhat discouraging because it describes me so well. Another pastor surveyed his congregation as to what keeps them from sharing the gospel with others. And there were a lot of answers, but there were ten of the, there were three around which a lot of answers clustered uh, that emerged at the top. In third place was this, I'm afraid I won't know what to say. You ever feel that way? I'm afraid I won't know what to say. Second place answer was, I'm afraid I'll put people off or offend them in some way. Maybe you felt that way too. But here's the number one answer. The one that that the greatest majority of people in this particular congregation gave. It was, I'm afraid of how people will react toward me. There's that me thing, right? Me, what's going to happen to me? What are, you, what are the consequences going to be for me? Each of those answers is so common, isn't it? And not a single one of them reflects much in the way of boldness. But they prayed for boldness. Why boldness? The request that that these believers made in in Jerusalem, this church to whom Peter and John had returned, isn't explicitly explained, but we, we can infer even from our own experience some reasons for their request. Perhaps they asked for boldness because, like most of us, they simply know they don't have it in themselves. I know I don't. There's there's a scene in C.S. Lewis' book, Prince Caspian, one of the volumes in the Chronicles of Narnia, where the character Susan has been experiencing a crisis of faith and allowing her fears to get the best of her. And when she again encounters the great lion Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the Chronicles, he turns to her and calls her by name Susan. And hearing him speak her name, she begins to cry, 
But then he says, you have listened to fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? And sometimes, don't we just need Jesus to breathe on us? To, to breathe courage into us in order to, to be and to do what He calls us to be and do? Boldness will always be needed when we're facing opposition. And if we're going to identify ourselves, listen now, if we're going to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ and commit our lives to making Him known, we will face intense opposition from spiritual forces that are arrayed against us. Paul said to the Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not those people. It's spiritual powers, spiritual forces that are behind them. And it's, it's at those times that we need to understand clearly from whom the boldness must come. And it is not from ourselves. That kind of boldness cannot be self-generated. It's not just puffing out your chest. It comes from Him and Him alone, or it doesn't come at all. Sorry about that. I didn't do it. See, I love William Barclay's comment here. He, he wrote of Peter and John, the one thing that never even struck them was to obey the Sanhedrin's command to speak no more. Into their minds at that moment, there came certain great convictions, and into their lives came a tide of strength. Aslan had breathed on them. God had had breathed boldness into them. You know, um, the next thing they prayed for then was for more signs and wonders from the Lord. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice where the Notice where the, the healing comes from. Notice the source of the signs and wonders. Is that coming from them? You know, I, I know some people who don't think they've been to church unless they've witnessed some supernatural sign. There has to be someone or a group of someone who speak in tongues, um, someone who gets healed, someone who has a demon exercised. And it almost seems for some Christians that the manifestation of signs from the Holy Spirit are a kind of Christian entertainment. What we need to understand is that in the New Testament, there is one singular purpose for the working of signs and wonders, one alone, and that is the attestation of Jesus as the Christ, the, the evidence that He is who the speaker is claiming Him to be, the Son of the living God, the confirmation of the truth of the gospel as it's being proclaimed. Listen to what Peter said to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And when Paul and Barnabas were later in the city of Iconium, we read in Acts 14, verse 3, so they, Paul and Barnabas, that is, remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who 
bore witness to their word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Where did the signs and wonders come from? It was the Lord who was bearing witness to their words. And so here in Acts 4, the church is praying for God to stretch out his hand and to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the apostles so that so that they could continue to speak the word boldly, proclaim the gospel of the crucified and resurrected and exalted Christ to more and more people. So the priority is the proclamation of the gospel. Signs and wonders are the means that God provided to accompany the message of salvation in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And whenever and wherever and however we get that order of priority reversed, we will no longer find ourselves in the place of God's blessing. And then in verse 31, God responds. God responds. Notice the connector. And when they had prayed, when they had prayed, Luke tells us that there were three results of the prayer that they prayed. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Three results, three outcomes. First, the place was shaken. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. There was a whole lot of shaking going on. In the Old Testament, this this kind of physical shaking was sometimes an indicator, not of a natural earthquake, but of the supernatural presence and power of God. For example, in Exodus 19, the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai in a thick cloud to, to meet with Moses, and the mountain itself trembled at his presence, it says. In Isaiah 6.4, the prophet recorded that the earth shook when he encountered a vision of God in the temple. In the New Testament, Matthew recorded in his gospel, chapter 27, verse 51, that the earth shook when Christ died and the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. We sang earlier that the earth shook when Jesus was raised from the dead. So what then did this shaking of the place where where the disciples were gathered mean for the church in Jerusalem that day? It meant this, I think, that God was manifesting his presence and putting his stamp of approval on their prayer. Notice it doesn't say that the place where they were gathered was shaken. It It does say that the place where they were gathered was shaken. It doesn't say that there was an earthquake in the general region. It's specific to them. It's specific to to their gathering place, to the building or the house where they had assembled. And I think God was simply saying, I like this. I'm pleased with your prayer. This is how I want you to pray. I'm going to do just as you have prayed so that you can proceed with what you've prayed for because it is at the heart or at the center of my will and purpose for this time and for you and for the world. What a profound affirmation it must have been. What what an incredible encouragement it must have been for the apostles and the rest of the church. One of the early church fathers, a man named John Chrysostom, commented that the place was shaken 
And that made them the more unshaken. Isn't that good? The place was shaken and that made them the more unshaken. Secondly, Luke tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 31. I looked it up and that word all, it means all. It means all. Both men and women, young and old, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again. Again. A fresh new filling for what would come next. And then finally, they continued to speak the word with boldness. They continued to speak the word with boldness. Verse 31. Well, what does it mean that that they continued to speak the word with boldness? What does boldness look like? The word itself means freedom. It means fearlessness. It means the capacity to speak and act with confidence. What resulted for these new believers in Jesus was that they left a witness that made an eternal impact in individual lives and in the entire world. It turned the world upside down. One of the things that seems to repeat over and over again in the Acts of the Apostles is that every time the church experiences persecution and responds in faith and dependence on the Spirit of God, what follows is a new season of spiritual power, a new season of proclamation of the gospel message so that more and more people believe in Jesus Christ, they're saved, the church continues to grow. The new season is always preceded by the church getting on its knees in dependent prayer. I often hear people expressing a desire for revival in the church in our time. Something we all need to be reminded of is that the common thread that runs between every major revival in the history of Christianity has been a collective commitment to fervent, humble, dependent, passionate prayer. Without exception. May we be those who pray humbly and act boldly and speak the word of God freely in our time in the name of Jesus. The Jesus that lives in you is the Jesus that died for you. He's the one who on the night that he was betrayed during the the Passover meal uh, took bread and he broke it and he distributed distributed it to his disciples and he said to them this bread is my body which i am giving for you they didn't understand that in a matter of hours he'd be hanging from a roman cross but they didn't forget that he had said this. This is my body, which is given for you. Take it and eat it, all of you, in remembrance of me. And then later, near the close of the meal, Jesus 
took up what was in the, the Passover service known as the cup of redemption. And the disciples came to understand it that way in a way they had never understood it before. What it really symbolized, what, what it pointed them to. He said, this cup, this cup of redemption is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new deal, the new promise. I'm going to put my spirit in them. I'm going to forgive their sins. I'm not ever going to remember their sins again. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Sovereign Lord, God of revelation, God of creation, God of history, may we be bold. May you fill us with boldness to speak your name. And Lord, would you attend us as we make that commitment in our lives to to share the gospel with people around us who do not know you. Would you attend us with every resource we need, knowing that this is your expressed will, that we would make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything you have commanded us. And we thank you for the promise of your presence. And we look forward to the day when you will come again for us. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.